You're listening to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. Today we are joined by Antonio Viragosa, the mayor of Los Angeles from 2005 to 2013. We sat down with Mayor Viragosa to talk about how the city has changed since he was mayor, why voters agreed to tax themselves during a recession, and how in the world he managed to get the federal government to actually invest in infrastructure. Stay tuned. CitySpeak sponsors include Batoni Architect. Based in LA, Batoni Architect is dedicated to improving the urban environment by offering custom architectural solutions for their clients. You can explore their projects at batoniarchitect.com or email at info at batoniarchitect.com. CitySpeak is also sponsored by Lexigon. Lexigon is a Paris-based architectural visualization studio with its U.S. office located in Los Angeles, specializing in 3D renderings and animations. Lexigon, pretty pictures, nice colors, and damn good renders. Mayor Viragosa, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. So really excited to talk to you today, in part because, as it's now been just under 15 years since you took office as mayor, uh, you perhaps, I think more than any other currently serving elected official, can provide a long view perspective on how LA has changed over the years till now. So just starting out really generally, when you're driving down the 10 or walking around downtown, you look around and you see all the extraordinary development happening everywhere in the city. Does it surprise you? Is this something you imagined when you were, when you were mayor? Well, given that I'm 66 years young and born and raised here in Los Angeles, I guess I do have a long view and like to have a much longer one going forward. Thank you for having me, by the way. And yes, you know, going back to different places that I've known over the decades, I can tell you that LA's changed a lot. There's no question that a key part of that has been transit. I always talk about taking the number two bus, the 50 and the 26, to the YMCA downtown, taking the bus to high school as well, at Cathedral High School. And I I remember this town then and now. And yes, there have been a lot of changes, uh, particularly downtown. One of the monikers that the media gave you when you were mayor was Antonio Viragosa, the subway mayor. How does a mayor of car-crazy LA acquire a name like this? And what was your approach to transit? So I mentioned, I recently spoke at a conference in Vienna uh, for Harvard and in Mexico City and spoken around the country on the L.A. story with respect to transit. And I tell people, it really wasn't about transit. It was about reimagining this city. This city was the quintessential city of sprawl, and I knew that going in as mayor, that we were going to have to rethink, reimagine what the city could look like. And I, it was an opportunity to close our eyes for a moment and say, what would it be like to live and work close to a transit line? So that was the opportunity uh, that I saw with transit. And remember, so on the RTD board, I'd ridden the buses, a uh, young man. My mother rode a bus most of her life. And uh, I wanted to make sure that our transit system wasn't just an opportunity to move people, but to reimagine how we live. 
I want to get into the sort of mechanics, the policy mechanics of how you brought that reimagining to reality. Um, and as you are well aware and you experienced, transit to this day is not without its detractors. Uh, it's not without its pretty vehement opposition. And I want to get your take. What is it about transit that galvanizes people, galvanizes such opposition when seemingly it's such a basic good as you've expressed? I remember when we were building the exposition line, which now is hugely popular and has a ridership much beyond anything we imagined so quickly. And people would say to me, we don't want you people here. I was mayor. We don't want those people here. We won't use the system. Come with me on to a SC game or an event at the Coliseum and see if they're using that line. That line is hugely popular. It goes all the way to Santa Monica. So the opposition is strong against density. I believe that you can have what some have called elegant density, smart density, smart growth. We're going to grow. Stopping development, particularly in places where it makes sense, isn't the answer. The answer is giving you the same opportunity I had to buy a home. And we don't have that right now. The cost of housing in Los Angeles, the differential in terms of what people make and the cost of housing is bigger than virtually anywhere in the United States. New York and San Francisco may be more expensive, but we have a larger pool of poor people who can't afford a home. So they have to live in Temecula, Moreno Valley, Riverside, and go to work in El Segundo. While we're on the topic of opposition, perhaps the most visible other form of opposition that exists in the city to this day is the development of homeless housing. And you probably witnessed it during your administration. It is certainly visible today. What would you say to the people who have fears about building homeless housing in in their backyard? For a variety of reasons, including the economy, an economy that's not working for too many people, the lack of facilities and funds for mental health, the lack of housing. We have a homelessness problem that's grown more than 50% since I've been gone. And I've often said it's not because I've been gone. It's because we really haven't developed a comprehensive strategy to take it on. And all the experts will tell you, you start with housing. Yes, we have to address mental health. Yes, we have to address addiction. Yes, we have to address an economy that's not working. But at the end of the day, the big challenge facing us is a lack of housing, both affordable and other market rate. And from my vantage point, cities are going to have to take the lead. There's currently legislation in the state, SB 50, which there's a lot of criticism against because cities, and I was a mayor, and communities want to make their own decisions. But the decision can't always be no. You know, I get to travel since I've been gone all over the world, and I can tell you there are a few places in the Western industrialized world where you have the kind of homelessness that we have here. I actually don't know of any. You might find it in, in Mumbai. You might find it in Cairo. 
You don't find it in Mexico City, I'll tell you that. You don't find it in many countries that are not nearly as rich. And part of the problem is that it's so difficult to build and there's so much opposition. And I started out by saying, some of these people basically say, I got mine. So uh, I think what leaders have to do is go into those communities, make every effort to develop a consensus, but then make a decision. At some point, we can't be a city, to use Dickens, a tale of two cities, where people are living in the streets and other people are living behind gates. It just doesn't work. And there's a path forward. It doesn't mean we're going to have a homeless facility on every block and every place, but it does mean every community is going to have to do their part. When people look back on your administration, many remember it chiefly for Measure R, which was the halfpenny sales tax that has come to fund many of the transportation projects that we see today. What fewer people remember, though, is that your administration actually also worked with the federal government to pass legislation that arguably has also reshaped cities beyond our own. This legislation was called America Fast Forward. Can you tell us about this? I was someone who loved to go to town halls and go into communities. And one place, a woman asked, well, where's your train? You, you made us pass this half-penny sales tax, and you said it was going to generate $40 billion over 30 years. Where's your train at? And I said, well, ma'am, this was a half-penny sales tax, not a 10-cent sales tax. This is money that will be generated over a 30-year period of time, not a three-year period of time, but they gave me an idea. So I put together some experts, and I said, what could we do to leverage our money to bring in more money? And so the experts came up with the idea, going to the federal government and say, look, this is a time of high deficits and debt. You don't have the money and you're not raising the gas tax and you're not doing anything to assist cities and counties and states to rebuild our infrastructure. Give us low-cost loans and bonds that don't score against the budget, the federal budget, because there's a default rate of about 2%, and incentivize, prioritize those cities and counties that have put up their own money. That's the essence of America Fast Forward. For the Republicans who weren't even supportive of that, I offered, I said, look, California has the toughest environmental rules, tougher than the federal government. Right now you go to the state, and then after you're finished with the state environmental rule, you go with the federal government. Even though ours is stronger, you still have to go through that process. I said, do them together. Do them concurrently instead of consecutively and save time and money. So I gave them uh, permitting reform, environmental review reform to accelerate it, and came up with that idea. A couple of years later, we did Measure M and built on Measure R, Measure J, America Fast Forward. And now you'll see over the next decades a city that will transform. I was there, proud to say, because with Obama, President Obama, when he signed America Fast Forward standing right to the right of him. And it was because when I first raised the idea of America Fast Forward, he laughed at me and he said, we're not going to do that. You're asking for um, an earmark just for your city. And I said, no, I'm asking for an, an allocation of resources to those cities, those counties, and those states who are putting up their own money. So uh, it worked hard to get 
mayors across the country to support it. Initially, they weren't supportive because they wanted grants, not low-cost loans and bonds. They didn't want to put their own money up because they felt it was the federal government's responsibility. But in the end, we were able to prevail and was able to stand there with it. Your view on the role of cities in the U.S., particularly as it relates to the federal government, as you've been talking about, I think is interesting because it seems to get at an underlying philosophy that you have that I think is somewhat at odds with America's status as what you might call a nation state. And in fact, in many interviews in the past, you've often referred to L.A. and other global cities like New York, London, Mexico City, Singapore, Paris, etc., as city-states. And so do you think that the hierarchy of power that exists in America between federal, state, and city is moving or should be moving downwards towards the city, towards this idea of city-states? About 85% of the economic might of the nation is in our cities. If you took L.A., New York, and Chicago, we would have an economy bigger than France, actually the size of California. There is no question that the energy, the economic vitality, the intellectual capital of our nation and the world is in those city-states. In fact, today, if you look at the L.A. metropolitan economy, it's Tokyo, New York, and Los Angeles. Uh, This is a country, which is why when... I heard that various mayors, including our own, were thinking about running for president, and some people were dismissive of the idea. I said, hold it. You know, if somebody from Arkansas can run, if somebody from Delaware can run, why not somebody from Los Angeles or New York who's actually been a chief executive? I, 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 I really do believe a lot of the ideas, the energy, the innovation that's occurring in the world, it's happening in our, in our cities. The last example I'll give you that was the Copenhagen. I tell people at Copenhagen, which was a failed conference, if you remember, different than Paris, the major countries of the world were all elbowing each other to see who can get out of the room first, pointing fingers at one another to blame one another for the climate crisis that we face. The mayors were elbowing each other to see who can outdo one another to lead their cities and their regions in the world to address the issue of climate change. And that was the big stark difference that that you saw when we were there. And I think that's emblematic of the fact that cities, they're on the front lines, ready, willing, and able to take on those challenges. Uh, So Mayor Viragosa, I have to ask, what's in store now for you? Well, I love this town. As I mentioned, I was born and raised here. My grandpa got here 100 years ago. I'm going to stay involved. Uh, Retirement is not... Sometimes I hear from people, what does it feel like to be retired? I said, who's retired? Uh, I I, I want to stay involved, and and not just here locally, uh, nationally. uh, And I think you'll see me uh, on the campaign trail, not necessarily for my own candidacy, but speak out about the importance of coming together as a country and putting our country before party. Uh, In short, uh, stay tuned. I intend to stay involved. As you said in the beginning, your idea for passing Measure R and bringing massive policy changes to L.A., such as transit, such as housing, was part of a 
broader narrative of reimagining LA, reimagining it as, as you said previously, from a city of sprawl to a city of smart growth. 15 years later, right now, when you look around, how are we doing in that reimagining process? What is there left and what's in the future? We've got to do a better job of also investing in our human capital. It's really important that we understand we've got to educate the kids of this city. When you look at the knowledge economy and what it means to the world today, it's all predicated on the notion of the capital that comes with that knowledge. And our ability to nurture and grow that capital, to develop the next generation of leaders is really, really important to our destiny of being the capital of the Pacific Rim. And all of those things were tied together. The environment, I, we took us from 3% renewables to 20%. I think they're at 28% now. We uh, signed agreements to get completely off of coal. One day we'll be 100% renewable. We're not there yet, but one day we will be. We have to continue to address all of those aspects of what quality of life and livability is. Uh, I've always felt, and you quoted me uh, back then, I still believe that we are the city of America's future. I say, I'd say that we are to the world what London was in the 19th century and New York in the 20th. We're not there yet quite, but we will be. But it means we're going to have to take on these challenges, the challenges of livability, the challenges of growing together and not having a tale of two cities, the challenge of educating and nurturing the human capital so that we can grow and, as I said, be that city that many people see as the city of America's future. Mayor Viragosa, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with music and audio production by Greg Gordon-Smith. Tune in for our next episode.